0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson. It's Friday! Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh hopefully everybody's week went smooth sailing. It is Friday and that means it's time for the weekend and I'm pretty excited for this weekend. It's supposed to be nice out. It's supposed to be sunny. I might be able to get into my garden if it dries up a little bit. I might be able to do a little tree stand work. I might be able to uh take some pictures. I'm going to play with my kids. My wife is having a garage sale. Uh, so just a whole bunch of crazy things going on in in my life this weekend. Uh, I'm just excited that I won't be in my cubicle dungeon. Other than that, let's see. Oh, I was thinking about this while I uh, was thinking. I was thinking about this while I was thinking about what I needed to do for the intro of this particular podcast, but. I'm a huge fan of the USA chant in public places, and I, I think more people should do that. Uh, so no matter where you are listening to this podcast, I think we should all start a USA chant. Whenever you're listening to this, whether you're in line at a bank, uh, you're at work in your cubicle, you need to stand up right now. And let's just start it. USA, 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 USA. And then just keep going and going until someone asks you to leave the building. uh, Or, you know, to me, that's patriotism right there. (laughs) But anyway. Today, we have another kick-ass podcast, fourth one this week, and today we're going to be talking with Kevin Vistisen, and he's from Michigan, and he's going to talk about hunting for meat and hunting high-pressured public land. Those are the two main topics that we cover on uh, this Hunter Profile podcast And uh, he goes into a little bit of detail about his methodology of how he hunts up in Michigan. And it's just a really cool overall conversation between the two of us. I kind of get on a a soapbox for just a little bit. Uh, So I just want to reiterate before we get into this podcast that if you kill something and you're happy because you kill that and the 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 method of which you took that animal's life was legal and ethical i have no problem with what you hunt whether that's you know you're chasing booners or you're chasing you know you're just want meat or you you know you're happy with shooting a, a spike horn that's okay with me just don't bitch about something that you don't have and then do exactly what you bitch about that's that's what i'm i'm gonna leave it right there you'll find out more in the podcast but Real quick, I want to share an aha moment I had with Ozonics, and that's the that's the uh, company that we're representing in the spotlight today. I guess you could say um, I was sitting on the upwind side of a of a marsh, and my wind was blowing kind of it, the wind was blowing out of the northwest, and I was sitting in the northeast corner of the marsh. Uh, right along uh, a standing cornfield and my wind was cutting the top corner of this marsh and blowing into a cattle pattern or a cattle pasture where not a lot of deer would uh, would go. And between my tree and the cattle pasture was about 40 yards. So if something came along that fence line, uh, I didn't plan on it, but if something came a- along that fence line, I had, I'd have a shot at it. You know, the deer would hit my wind right as it stepped into my shooting lane, you know, almost a perfect scenario. So if it if it was something that I wanted to kill, uh, it was already in my shooting lane as it would be busting me, so to speak. And I had a ozonix in the tree. Well, this was several years ago, and this is what this is one of the reasons this made me a believer. But I saw a buck, oh upwind of me yet he kind of popped his head out, went back in the timber on this cornfield. And I was at an elevation where I could see the opposite side of the cornfield, and he was working his way kind of towards me, but angling away. If that makes sense, so he was he was quartering toward. Think of a triangle, and he was kind of walking the opposite, like uh, the opposite way from me. Well, anyway, I put the horns together, I rattle, and wouldn't you know, this buck does what absolutely every other buck that I've almost seen rattle in and they tried to loop downwind of me to try to catch the scent because they couldn't see and it was a buck I decided to you know I thought he was bigger than what he was so I ended up passing him and this buck probably a four-year-old hits my ozonic stream and it caught his attention he didn't stop, he put his nose in the air and and he did what those big, mature bucks do when they you know when something just may not seem right to them, it catches their attention. nose in the air, and he starts drinking that air, just these huge, deep breaths, his mouth is open, he's trying to taste the air, you know his lips kind of curled, and he's trying to figure out what that is, but what he didn't associate that with was danger and this buck got a little curious and he came within 25 yards of my tree stand completely broadside in a shooting lane and ended up not spooking Um, he walked off up up the uh, draw towards kind of like a doe bedding area that was up there and it was at that moment right there that I knew that this Ozonics contraption was something special and since that day, I, I kind of bring it into the stand. Well, I don't kinda. I do. I bring it into the stand with me every hunt. Uh, it's just, it's a huge deal if you have limited time to hunt and you want to protect your downwind side from, from you know from scenarios like that. So go to Ozonti- ozonicshunting and you know check out. Read up on all the research about this product and how it can help you uh, create more opportunities, you know, at sh- shot opportunities in the timber. So uh, be sure to uh, go uh, go check that out. Now, let's get into today's Hunter Profile podcast with Kevin
1: Vistisen, Mister Kevin Vistisen. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Dan. How's my favorite nine finger deer hunting <laughs> podcast host doing today?
0: Uh, I'm I'm doing pretty good, and and it hasn't grown back yet, so I can still say it's nine fingers.
1: It's crazy, you know. I've been following you for a long time now, and I I've never got the story. Yet. Is it something that you? Uh, is it something that you're going to reveal at a special time, or did I just miss it?
0: I don't know, man. Uh, you probably missed it. I'm sure I've, I've mentioned the real story out there at some point in time, but you'll have to dig back through. I don't know if I, I talked about it on the Wired to Hunt podcast or on my podcast, but uh, yeah, it's gone and it's not coming back. It's, <laughs> if it If it does, it's like one of those dads. I don't know if you ever hear these stories about a dad who says he travels uh for work, but he actually has two separate families. Oh god. So maybe my finger has a separate hand somewhere that it's living with. Uh, often uh, cause I lost it in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, alright. Well, that's an interesting theory. Yeah. It's probably not accurate, but, you know, <laughs> it's uh it it could it could be. All right. So um today We are going to be talking about uh, your adventures as a public land hunter, Um, but before we get started on all that, why don't you go ahead and tell us
1: where you're from and what do you do for a living? So I'm originally from a very small town, uh, Algonac, Michigan, which is located at the mouth of the St. Clair River where it dumps into into Lake St. Clair on the st um the st clair river flats and i'm a plumber i've moved around the country a little bit and came came back here basically for my love of deer hunting and my my love of the water and i resided here and i am a service technician for a plumbing company
0: nice that keep you pretty busy throughout the year
1: Yeah, it does. It's, uh, there's never really a slow moment. I got in with this company kind of when they were just starting a big expansion project and it was right place, right time. We've grown X, uh, you know, a tenfold in the last five years and there's just, there hasn't been a slow moment. So yeah, it, it keeps me really busy. You know, plumbing doesn't wait, Everybody's got it in their house, and when somebody's got a, a pipe leak in and it's destroying their home they don't hesitate to call you at one thirty in the morning you know right
0: so is is more of your work
1: commercial or residential It's a mix uh I would say it's probably sixty percent residential but I handle a lot of our commercial and industrial accounts as well so it's a mix day to day I have no idea what i'm going to be doing i could be working on a you know a big tankless water heater in a in a commercial atmosphere and then you know installing a kitchen faucet in a little lady's house day to day it's that's kind of the reason why i like the job it's a change of pace you know every couple hours i'm on a different scene uh talking with different people and uh it it keeps me moving right
0: now I, I just so happen to know a couple plumbers. My, un, my uncle is a plumber, and uh, every once in a while I'll get a really good story out of him about his job. Do you got a good story for us?
1: I have a lot of them. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head what's one of the better ones. You know, it's uh, it's amazing to me nowadays going into people's houses and wondering how they make it through a day of life as an adult, just the, (laughs) the, the lack of common sense and general knowledge of some people. Like it's probably not a great idea to put a saw on a pipe and start cutting on it before you shut the water down and, (laughs) and drain the house, you know? And I see these things all the time and, uh, I can't pinpoint a particular story, but I guess the, the funniest thing to me on a week to week basis is the, just the, the lack of general knowledge on a lot of, Younger, I guess, homeowners in in doing silly things, and then me getting called there to reconcile the damages. Gotcha. All right.
0: my My last plumbing question is: What's the grossest thing
1: that you have ever pulled out of a drain? <sighs> the grossest thing that I've ever pulled out of a drain. Oh man. Uh, so. It's pretty bad. Uh, like I said, I do commercial and industrial, and that includes nursing homes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've had a nursing home sewer line bust right. over over top of my head and nearly escaped without being uh, covered in really, really, really bad stuff and you know, go in there and have to pull out a a ball of uh, a blend of hair and food and and soap scum that was <laughs> probably six to eight feet long
0: oh.
1: in a four inch pipe. You know, it, it essentially as a mass filled up a five gallon bucket. Right. So collectively, that was probably the most disgusting thing that I've ever been oh, in, involved with, and luckily. I've been in the trade now for enough years to not, I really, those calls kind of get filtered down to, you know, some of the newer, younger guys. <laughs> so I'm kind of fortunate that I work on a lot of uh, a lot of plumbing now, especially with like water heaters and stuff, right. uh, re- requires a little bit of electrical knowledge and stuff. So I, I get to work on a little bit more of that stuff and yeah. keep away from that now.
0: Ugh, I got the shivers on that story. And I don't I typically don't get grossed out by much, you know, cuz as deer hunters, you know, we got to gut a deer and if, you know, sometimes there's guts involved and and uh or like a stomach shot or something like that, but that kind of stuff just gives me the heebie-jeebies.
1: It's pretty bad. You know, when my wife was getting ready to have the baby, there was women telling me, "Oh, you know, a lot of guys say it's really gross and you can't handle it if you watch and I you know, my reply was you you just don't know what I do on a day to day basis right. in my profession. Right. Right, amen. I watched
0: I watched both my kids get born and I had I had absolutely
1: no problem with that at all. Me neither. I, I actually I really enjoyed the the whole process and I hope to be going through it again here at some point as uh, my wife and I are going to try for another kid. So, and oh. congratulations to you, man. You got one on the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming
0: ready or not. September, uh, late September 28th. And we'll see uh, next time every, like if a picture of me, if you were to look at a picture of me now and then probably a picture of me a year from now, I'll, I'll look like uh, <laughs> Oh, what's his name? Uh, the professor You're the, the professor from uh, Back to the Future, just all strung out, hair everywhere,
1: yeah, gray hair. You're gonna, yeah, you're gonna look like you ran a presidential term.
0: <laughs> that's right, that's right.
1: All right, enough of this crap. Let's
0: <laughs> literally, literally, let's, let's talk about deer hunting. All right. Yeah. So, how old were you when you started deer hunting? I was probably around ten. Ten. Uh, and who kind of guided you? Who brought
1: you into hunting so I'd say it was a combination of both my grandfather and my dad and they didn't particularly I didn't do a lot of hunting with them uh but they just kind of set me up in a position to have the ability to hunt when I was probably in kindergarten my parents moved into an old farmhouse that was neighbored. my grandparents have a like an 80 acre it was a sod farm and so we we moved there and that gave me the ability as my grandfather got older they transitioned out of the sod farm they began to retire it and they started leasing the fields out to local farmers and planting you know soybeans and corn and so they gave me a place to basically walk out my back door and hunt. As far as my dad ever doing any hunting, he was a one time a year go up to deer camp, uh, more for the social aspect. I think he, I know he did. He only ever shot one one deer in his entire life, and it was an accidental situation, really. But uh, my grandfather did some deer hunting with me, and they, like I said, they kind of set the table for me, the ability to to do that. And then my dad also, when he was younger, he bought some property with a group of friends up in northern Michigan. And then my grandfather bought some property up there too. So I had places to go and get into it. And at a pretty young age, you know, by 12 years old, I was going out pretty much by myself, you know, never having any idea really of what I was doing. But uh, by high school and probably even middle school, when I came home, I got off the bus and I ate a can of SpaghettiOs and I went and sat in the woods basically every evening. That's all I did. It kept me out of trouble, you know? Right. For sure. It's funny you
0: say that. That was my after-school snack most days too, where I would get home from school. I'd eat a can of SpaghettiOs or like ravioli or stroganoff. Oh yeah. They, you're... Cause they were selling, they'd sell them at Aldi's for like 50 cents. So I'd warm one of those up and then I'd go run around the neighborhood until, I don't know, it's time to eat supper. And (laughs) Anyway, uh, uh, that kind of brings me back, SpaghettiOs. Anyway, um, so I take it, just like most hunters, at at that age, did you start off hunting with a gun?
1: Uh, No, I started with a bow, and like I said, probably... 12 years old was the legal age to get a license so you know probably at 10 years old I started trekking into the woods with a bow I never got more than 150 yards close to a deer out in a field ever until I was 12 years old and then a a guy that worked for my dad for the landscaping company had put a tree stand up out in the woods and I came across it one day and so I ventured up into it and By that time, you know, my parents had put me through hunter safety and everything. And, you know, I'm 12 years old. I didn't have a job. I don't have any money. My dad uh, hooked me up with some arrows and some broadheads and I got a hunting license and I started going out there. And I did that for the first couple years. And then 14 years old was when you could legally gun hunt. And then I started going up to deer camp with, with my dad, which I've, I've never missed a year of. And I think when I was 15, it was my second year going up north is when I got my, my first deer, you know, a year and a half old buck with a gun.
0: So did you harvest a deer first with
1: a gun or a bow first? Yep. With a gun. With a I gun. Was, I was, yep. I was 15 years old. Uh, I got a year and a half old buck with a gun and then it was probably a couple of years later, really, uh, probably 17 when i got my first uh i got a year and a half old six point buck with my with my bow
0: okay so do you recall uh harvesting that very first uh buck that you ever shot and you know did that set i mean did that get you more fired up for uh like did that right there let you know that hey i want to i want to do this and i want to do this as much as possible
1: so it was before that, uh, I, I shot a couple doe before that. And oh, okay. even before, even before I got a doe, um, just, it was probably the first time that, I can tell you exactly when it was, I, I was a lot younger. I was probably only eight years old and we had this old rickety blind that we somehow acquired and my dad took me out one time when I was young to sit out in the woods on an evening, and you know, he was just more taking me out there to get me out and be out in the wilderness and whatnot. Like I said, he wasn't a a, a real ser- he was never a serious deer hunter. And I remember looking out that window, and about fifteen yards from us, a doe had come out and was walking across the face of the blind. And I, I remember it specifically because that's the first time that I ever swore in front of my dad. I said, "Holy <laughs> shit!" There's a deer. And, you know, he kind of looked at me and I was just, it was, it was that intense for me. And the first time that I ever saw a deer in the woods, I was just instantly like that elevated heart rate can't be replicated. And I I was sold on it.
0: Right. Okay. So then that kind of started to snowball. And, um, when did you, how old were you when you started taking it very seriously and, you know, started
1: going out without, Uh, A mentor in the woods, like going out solo hunting? Well, I thought that that was a long time ago when I started taking it really seriously, uh, just because I spent a ton of time out there, you know, going out on my own, I pretty much had been doing that all along because as far as mentorship in the woods, uh, you know, my younger brother and I both just were sold on hunting right away, but uh, the family owning a family business and being landscapers, you know, they just didn't, uh, they have time for things like that. So we, we kind of did it on our own and we spent a ton, a ton of time doing it, but it really wasn't until a couple years ago when I really, really started getting serious and kind of transitioned into, you know, not just being a deer hunter for the months of October, November, and December, where, my whole year started to get, you know, accumulation of everything in, in prep for the fall and reading about deer hunting and listening about deer hunting. That, that really just happened to me it was a couple couple of years ago. I always spent a ton of time deer hunting, but... Right. So
0: then at that point, what changed, right? So you, you went from spending just a lot of time hunting... To doing what?
1: I guess what happened is, well, one, uh, when I met my wife, she was traveling, well, she was going to school down in Florida. So when I met my wife, I I moved down to Florida for about a year with her. And so being down there when the fall came around, I kind of realized like how much I missed it. I was like sick to my stomach in the fall. Right. and it, it made me realize, like, man, I just cannot live without this. And, and luckily, she changed schools, and we moved back up to the Chicago area to the Midwest, and I, I did some hunting in Illinois. But when I came back here, I, I just, I really, really got serious about it. And I I kind of threw my other hobbies aside and just started collectively spending less time doing other things. You know, I used to be into cars and car stereo stereo all the silly stuff that kids are into in their teenagers and right. their early 20s and sports and things and I, I just deer hunting began to overwhelm me did you have the big speakers the big had, the subwoofers I, I had the big speakers and then I <laughs> traded them for bigger speakers and you know the whole thing as a teenager and looking back it's like oh man when my kid gets that age I'm I'm gonna have to deal with him because I can't let him be as annoying as I was.
0: It's kind of funny. I had a buddy in uh, high school who was really big into the big speakers. And, uh, you know, the, the the bass is so loud, you can't even hear the music. So it's just boom, 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 and I would I'd sit there. No offense to
1: you, but I made fun of him for it. And well, <laughs> I'd make fun of him, too, because I was never that guy. I enjoyed au- audio quality. So right. everything worked worked uh good you could hear the music i was never the guy that just had two big speakers and nothing else but i i totally get what you're saying right
0: right so then so you moved back up from florida and what happened i mean you hunted illinois for a while um you know illinois is considered a big buck state you know when okay so here's what here's where we'll kind of start this whole thing I We were communicating on Facebook about you coming on the podcast and, and talking about growing up in Michigan, hunting public land and stuff like that. And then I, I sent you uh, an email uh, or a message that said, hey, man, can you send me some pictures so I have them to post on on the podcast of your success? And yeah. you, send me, you send me out of the, let's see, nine, ten pictures you send me. There's one, two, three, four, five, six – Seven pictures of the 10 are of big piles of meat, right? (laughs) And then you said, hey, man, I'm more of a meat hunter. Yeah. So so when did you kind of put yourself in, I guess, is there a category for you? Because you say you're a meat hunter, but at the same time, you also like to chase bucks too, right? So kind of explain what your methodology is
1: of of deer hunting. So it was a real recent thing. You know, we were just saying I moved back here, I kind of got serious about deer hunting. I started watching everything, deer hunting, buying all the videos, watching the sportsman's channel all the time. I kind of got sucked into all the products. You know, I'd be buying biologic, uh, food food plot stuff and just basically anything that the guys that I was watching were selling, I, I was getting into. And I wasn't really having success. Michigan's a, a tough state to To hunt a lot of pressure, not obviously known for big deer, and I found myself in a situation where you know it's like I'm doing all these things, but I'm not having anything close to the amount of success that these guys are having on TV. I mean, I literally had access to a small farm and machinery. I'm planting food plots. I'm I'm doing everything that they tell me to do, and it's it's not working out, and so. That was kind of my mentality, is like I'm chasing these big deer and I started to get burned out on it. Like I start I found myself getting frustrated and not really enjoying it that much anymore. And it wasn't until I you know, I don't know if it was a year or a year and a half ago or whatever when I kind of came across Steven Ranella and his venture of explaining it a little differently in a way that I ever had before, as far as, you know, how he, and what he thought about deer hunting and going out there and the acquisition of food. And, you know, all along, I had always loved venison. We we were always eating venison burgers and tenderloins and things like that. But I always thought the end goal for me was, you know, I want to get a bit, uh, a, a giant buck and hang it on the wall. And that, that was my mark of success. And then I just slowly started to realize like, for me, the experience of going out there and spending the time out in the woods, smelling the, you know, the, the smell of the woods on a crisp fall morning and the time spent with friends and family and then, you know, months later having that food to go pull out of the freezer and not have to go to the grocery store. You know, my wife is kind of, and I am a little bit too, I'm not as crazy as she is, but You know, a little bit of a health nut, and so she would always. She's going to go to the grocery store. She's going to buy organic grass-fed beef, right? It's like seven to nine dollars a pound, depending on what's going on, and that breaks the bank pretty quick. So the fact that I could sell her on, hey, I'm, I'll just go out here and get a deer, and you know, put thirty pounds of organic burger and break it down to, you know, after the equipment is you know paid for and you're just buying the stuff to package it you know breaks down to whatever you know $1.50 a pound it it started making me see a different side of it and i guess i got past basically my hunts being uh, the end goal of always going out there and shooting a big buck and you know before we started this i know you and i discussed it a little bit My, my mindset in november when the rut's going is I am not shooting a deer unless it's a mature buck, but for the month of October, when I know my chances are relatively low for the areas that I hunt to see a big buck on his feet and the month of December, November, I'm hunting primarily after antlers, but those other couple months, I'm just out there enjoying the scenery and trying to acquire meat and then, you know, figuring out new things and ways to to do with it. I have a big grinder make a ton of sausage and, you know, I've started to follow some of the guys that you and Mark have had on your podcast that, uh, actually teach you in depth how to butcher and process wild game. And it, it just really started to elevate my overall quality of life. And it made me fall back in love with hunting, like at a deeper level than I ever had an appreciation for it before. Right. So
0: do you think that, you are a meat hunter first and a and a i guess a mature buck or big buck hunter second, or do you feel that
1: a person can be both so my goals just kind of yeah you you absolutely can be both um yeah I know you hear a lot of it going back and forth and and things and you hear obviously the term trophy hunter but for me yeah like you said you like you sent me like seven pictures of plates of meat and I guess the trophy is overall being able to provide a a higher quality of living and that's why I'm going into the woods in the first place is because it just nothing makes me happier throughout the year than being out there and living that lifestyle and I've just found a real nice blend that mixes or works really well for me as far as basically different parts of the hunting in michigan we have a really long hunting season our season our archery season opens october 1st that carries through till november 15th when our gun season opens then we have two weeks uh till december 1st of firearm which is rifle or shotgun depending on what zone you're in and then after that almost the entire month of december is depending on what zone you're in uh muzzleloader season so we have a real long real long season and like i was saying the areas that i hunt particularly have really heavy pressure so your chances of seeing a mature buck up and on his feet in the month of october or in December are, are not all that likely. So I kind of space things out into like a three month window. Whereas like October, my goal is to go out and acquire meat and just enjoy myself. November I'm hunting hard for a mature deer, a big deer. I'm not shooting anything, you know, in Michigan, it's a, it's a three year old buck and in Southern Michigan where there's good ag Uh, a three-year-old buck can be a really, really nice looking deer. I mean, you can get into the 130s and the 140s, which some guys will spend their entire life never shooting. So that's my goal the month of November. And then when December rolls back around, you know, it just depends on what mood I'm on, on, honestly, during the day. If I'm traveling far uh, up north, uh, my standards might be like a little bit lower as far as antler size goes, because if I'm going up there with a group of guys, my whole objective is to enjoy the trip, acquire a deer, get some food, be able to come back to camp, uh, butcher it up and throw it on the grill and have an amazing dinner. And and if I just held out all the time for, you know, a mature deer, I, I would be selling myself short on not getting to experience that as often as I do is if I'm willing to just take a, nice mature dough. And I'll just be straight up and honest with you. This is the first year in probably 10 or 12 years that I shot a year and a half old buck this year, which, you know, a lot of people will criticize me for, but it was a position where I was up late in the season, late December. It was super cold, zero degree temperatures we drove a couple hundred miles up there just to go up, uh, to get a deer. I, two deer minimum a year is what my family will go through. We can go through three, uh, with no problem with giving it away to a little bit of friends and family. And the last five minutes, literally of the hunt of the weekend, I had a year and a half old buck come through chasing, chasing some does around. This just this picturesque snowy scene out on some public land. And I had never, ever shot a deer in my life in the month of December. And so it was kind of like a, a I don't want to say like a bucket list thing, but it, it was like a, a goal of mine to go on a late season, Northern Michigan public land deer hunt with a muzzle loader and get a deer. And there were no doe tags available for that area. And I already burnt my doe tag down here in the south, and so my option, my only option, was going up there and shooting a buck. And I hunted for a couple of days, and I saw a couple year and a half old bucks, and I, I let them walk through. And like I said, the last five minutes of my last hunt, I had a year and a half old six point come through chasing some does around, and I decided, you know what, like I I, I kind of need this deer, and I I. I was not regretful in any way, shape, or form of shooting that deer because I had a couple other guys with me and I got to send them a text and say, Hey, I got a, I got a deer. And they, they thought because we were muzzleloader hunting, they, they thought I was completely pulling their chain that I had just discharged my gun versus having to deal with unloading it, you know? Yeah. And until they got out there and physically saw a deer on the ground, they're like, Oh my God, like you really got a deer. And then I got to have you know, this great experience with those guys of getting the thing out of the woods and, and cutting it apart, and then, you know, throwing it on the barbecue here a weekend ago and having some venison burgers out of it. And I don't regret it at all. Right. So, did you, you didn't harvest a deer up until that particular buck that year, right? I took a doe. A doe? Uh, I took a doe on our property here in southern Michigan. And when I say our property, I just want to clarify, because you and I talked, you know, this was going to be a public land. We we're going to discuss talking public land and pressure deer hunting. The public land that I hunt receives more pressure than the public land. I don't know if I said that right. The private land that I hunt receives more pressure than the public land that I hunt. That's kind of why I've transitioned into hunting public land is because I can kind of get away from people in a manner that I can't. The yeah. parcels that I have to hunt that are private are shared with other friends and family members who don't hunt in the exact same manner and don't have the same goals and things that I do. Like our farm down here, I cut some buck beds and uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, I, I was out scouting. I came back. There was a note uh, on the back of my truck and it was from my brother's daughter. And she said, Uncle Kevin. We're playing a game. Come find me. And they gave me a hint. And so they left this trail of notes for me. I ended up finding her in a buck bed, a a area that I had hinge cut. And she had a milk crate set up with a board game on it. And, you know, to her, it was like, oh, this is a super cozy little area. We're just going to hang out here in the woods. So, you know, I I do all those things to try to improve our property habitat. But it's out of my control as far as what other things want other people want to do on it. Right. So when you shot this buck, you mentioned it was chasing a doe. It
0: was a year, a yearling. Was your tag specifically for a, a buck
1: or could you have shot a doe if you wanted to, too? It was only for an antlered buck. Okay. Uh, I could not, I did not have, without question, if I had had a doe tag, I would have used it. I would have never shot that deer. I haven't yeah. shot a year and a half old buck in, oh, like I said, probably probably 10 year period, but. That was the only thing that was accessible to me. It was people use the the word meat crisis. And, uh, you know, that's not all that realistic. I could go to the grocery store. I'm not in a crisis, but that was my only option aside from going, ended up going to the grocery store towards the end of the year to have to buy meat. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: So, you know, I kind of have a, an issue. This is like my personal feelings with, you know, obviously there's people out there saying, saying stuff like, Hey, if I don't shoot this buck, my neighbor will, you know, we've had on the podcast before we've had this discussion about, uh, you know, if I don't shoot this yearling or two year old, then my neighbor's going to shoot it. And that means I can't get it. Okay. Whatever. But they're the same, you know, and they complain about that. But then at the same time they say, well, I'm a meat hunter and they shoot they shoot bucks and then complain about having no mature bucks. So it doesn't make sense to me that a guy would say they're um say they're a meat hunter when in just about every situation I don't know of a of a an area that has too many bucks, you know what I mean? Uh sure. it, it, in states like from what I've gathered from talking to people uh, certain parts of Michigan have plenty of does to shoot. Uh, certain parts of Pennsylvania have plenty of does to shoot. Even in Iowa, uh, um, there's plenty of does to shoot as opposed to young bucks. So, you know, if you're a true, if you're a true meat hunter, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying the general you, um, sure. that you're going to shoot the very first deer that walks by your tree stand every single time you're never going to pass a deer if you're specifically hunting for meat right so then so then if people complain about hey there oh man there's you know there's no big bucks in my area it's i'll never shoot a big buck okay so when did you pass a small buck and i don't i don't know i'm kind of on a soapbox right now preaching but uh that's just not like to me
1: that's all that's nonsense sure no i totally get that it's it's been an eye opener for me too because uh i communicate and talk to a lot of different people uh just in my the nature of my job being a service tech like we were talking everybody has plumbing in their house so i i communicate with a lot of different people and i walk into a lot of garages where people have camouflage and tree stands so i get the opportunity to talk to a lot of hunters that i don't know and it really is different strokes for different folks you know i I have a hard time now criticizing the guy who works 60 hours a week and takes, you know, three days off a year to spend a couple hundred dollars to buy a tag and go to Northern Michigan and doesn't really have a place to hunt. And he literally has three days and he goes up there and his tag is good for, you know, a spike buck and, and that's what he sees and that's what he shoots you know, previous to the last couple of years, Man, I would have blasted the hell out of that guy on social media just saying, what are you doing? We're never going to have good deer. But I kind of get it now. And it's nice that we're at a point where everybody seems to be focused and working in a general direction. Obviously, big uh, things like QDMA are taking part. And I think not only the state of Michigan is seeing – much less of that and bigger and better deer and habitat structure and structure of the herd. But overall the statistics scientifically throughout the country, I think this this year was I don't know if you know the figures, but I know that they were really impressive as far as people shooting young deer.
0: Yeah. I think uh they shot people were shooting less uh year like yearling bucks. Right. Right, which is a which you know for the for the people who are concerned for you know antler size, that's a good thing, you know, or or maturity level, that's a good thing, and and by no means at all am I hating on the guy who has three days to hunt and shoots a a spike buck if he has a buck tag and he wants to shoot it and it makes him happy. That to me is awesome. I just I'm a I hate it when people bitch about no big, you know, there's no big bucks in my area. And then they shoot a small
1: buck or they shoot a a one or two year old, whatever. Right. Trust me, Uh, Dan, I've literally the area that I live, uh, people are hardcore about deer hunting and there's real small parcels. You know, people might have 10 acre lots and 15 acre lots. And I've literally seen uh, fistfights over people shooting young deer, you know, where guys don't, Uh, agree on what is and what isn't acceptable it it can really raise emotions really quickly and then heaven heaven forbid you get on somebody's facebook and they post a picture of you know them shooting uh you know a year and a half old buck i mean they're just gonna get absolutely blasted but and i get that angle of it because for the overall herd health, it it makes sense to go out and shoot some does and let some bucks get a little bit older and control the numbers. And it's generally happening. But at the same time, I just now won't jump on somebody because I just don't know the whole back. I just don't know the whole backstory of what this guy's situation is. You know, if he got one day, if he got one day to hunt, all year. And he's, he's working 60 hours a, a week to provide for his family. He goes out there and gets a deer, you know, bravo, bravo to that guy. Cause he yep. paid for a, a tag and he put money into the system and he got out of it what he wanted. And yep. I, I don't, it's hard to make everybody happy. Right. Right. Amen. And shoot what, shoot what you want. That's what I say, whatever makes
0: you happy. Um, now let's talk about a little bit about this public land, um, It sounds to me like you started on public land, stepped away from it for a little bit and maybe started hunting some public ground, found out that that wasn't your cup of tea and went back to, uh, public ground or private. You went from public
1: to private to public. Yeah. So in Southern Michigan, where I grew up, um, where our farm is, it is essentially kind of across the street from like a 2,800 acre piece of public land, which known as the St. John's Marsh. Yeah. And like I said, where I grew up is called the St. Clair Flats. It's the biggest freshwater delta in the entire world. So it's absolutely loaded with waterfowl hunters, guys out shooting uh, ducks and uh, geese and deer is mixed in there as well. This piece of property, though, is the first big track of public land when you get outside of Metro Detroit. So it gets, it gets pressure unlike anything that I've ever seen. Okay. And my theory always was like, if I just find the small parcels of public land or private land around these, this is obviously where all the deer are going to go. But at the same time, these parcels are also small. They get basically the same or even more pressure. So I messed around a little bit hunting down here with that stuff, and I, I just never had real good experiences. Uh, you know, I had some negative interactions with people. I've had tree stands destroyed, stolen. Uh, guys are really serious in this area about deer hunting to the point where, like I said, in high school, you know, I, I saw fistfights over guys, like, finding out, like, who stole their tree stand off of the the St. John's Marsh. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it wasn't until that I started focusing more of my time up in northern Michigan. My dad had this piece of property, which is 120 acres that he shares with a group of guys. And I I would always go up there and it was just, you know, my thought process was, well, I have this private land. Why would I ever go on the public land? Well, it wasn't until the last couple of years where I started paying attention to public land and my rights to it. And I actually joined the BHA. And I started venturing out on it, and lo and behold, I come to find out that this parcel of private land that we have is basically surrounded by 105,000 acres of state forest land known as the Pigeon River State Forest Area. Okay. And I started venturing out into it, and what I found out is like, wow, I can actually be on this public land and get away from hunting pressure that I can't control on our private land because like I said other groups of people are own it and have the rights to hunt it just as well and I just started spending a lot more time out there and you just you can just keep walking and walking you can go up there every weekend and walk and hike and camp and I don't know that you could ever see the whole thing even in a lifetime you know 105,000 acres and then if you go up to northern or uh, to the uh, upper peninsula of Michigan, they have even more uh, public land. I, I'm not exactly sure what the the acreage is, but it's millions of uh, acres of public land that we have access to just here in the state of Michigan. And I kind of got sold on it. You know, I was at a point, too, in my life where I got into my 30s. And I had a good job and I started making reasonable money and every month i'm seeing the amount of money that i pay in taxes and it just pisses me off and then i started realizing i'm like you know part of this money that i pay in taxes goes to this land yeah and my whole mindset kind of changed and it's like man i'm never going to be crabby about paying taxes as long as i have this in my head where i can go up and enjoy this and utilize this stuff because no matter whatever happens in my life Uh, I'm probably not likely to be able to buy a 105,000-acre parcel. (laughs) Unless you hit it big. Unless I win some crazy lottery, and then even that, I don't know what it would take to buy 105,000 acres, you know? Yeah, for sure. So I have all this, and uh, so I start exploring it, and lo and behold, it's like, kind of at the exact same time where online maps came out and podcasts started coming out and I started crushing deer hunting knowledge and just getting into places that are deeper than what other guys are going and finding little pockets on maps. And what do you know, all of a sudden I'm seeing big, bigger deer, more deer. And I just, (laughs) the whole thing just kind of started to blend together for me. And I'm like, all right, I kind of see where my mentality of, being a hunter is moving forward from this point, And I'm basically sold on being a public land hunter. I am going to acquire a small parcel of private land for myself because it's something, uh, my grandfather has a small parcel. That's like 28 acres up in Northern Michigan that he's kind of been holding on for me to purchase from him as like a family deal. I'm going to do it as an investment. And so that I have somewhere to take my son when he's a little bit older, but right. my priority for, from here on out is to just, uh, go out on public land and, and, and deer hunt there. Right. So how difficult was it for you to
0: come to that realization? I mean, was, was it hard going into the first couple seasons as strictly a public land hunter? Um, or was it not necessarily the public land aspect? Because it sounds to me like you're fighting pressure everywhere you went. Um, was it, or was it more of a Hey, in in order to be successful, I need to do more
1: things to improve my, uh, chances outside of the hunting season. I guess one of the biggest things for me right up front was the comfort factor. You know, I was used to in growing up, it was you go sit out in a, you know, a shack, a deer blind and you throw some corn out and you just kind of wait for deer to come in. And if the right one comes in, you shoot it. And now I'm in a position where, you know, it's cold and it's windy. And uh, when you're on public land, you don't have the ability to go out there and drag it. You know, I I guess there is now, you know, some nice pop-up blinds that you can go and and pop up. But in Michigan, the deer are pretty savvy. If you just walk out on public land and pop up a deer blind, those deer are not going to come. I mean, you might see a yearling, but no mature buck, no mature doe is going to come anywhere near that thing. They know what's going on. So, You're having to be up in a tree all the time, whether it's late season, if it's raining, if it's windy, whatever that be. So getting used to, I guess I had to buy some better gear so that I could kind of sit out in the elements more. And then, you know, the couple few interactions that I had at first with like, hey, I'm here, I'm quiet, I'm comfortable. And then here comes a guy walking through, you know, and you're instantly just like flaming. You're like come on man are you serious it's like an hour before light and you're gonna come you know trucking through my deer hunting spot but now I've gotten a little bit older and I've been doing it a little bit more you know you you just figure it out like hey that guy might have just got off work and whatever he he didn't intentionally do it he didn't know you were there it's my fault I didn't go far enough I didn't do my part to avoid that situation you know right and go go ahead. ahead Yeah. No, I was just going to say that, uh, since then I really haven't had any like issues uh, adapting to it. It's all been super positive. Even when it comes to, you know, you, you get a deer and it's like, man, this is cool. I did it on public land. Right. Right. So what were your, you know,
0: after you, you know, had those realizations, what were your first couple seasons like after that up in the big woods of this, this public land?
1: Well, it's not, I go to spots now that necessarily I don't know exactly what's going to happen. You know, historically, I kind of went to spots that I'd hunted. Like I said, growing up, I never really had like a deer hunting mentor besides what I saw on TV and the things that I followed. And none of that stuff really worked out very well for me. Right. So now in the last couple of years, having access to the internet and following guys like you and, and Mark and all the other good deer hunting podcasts are out there really started to just put it all together and be able to find better spots and put myself in a position to go out there. And I I think, especially with maps now, maps are a huge thing. You know, every day, if I have downtime at work, I'm on my lunch, uh, today I had to get oil change on my truck. I'm on my phone and I'm looking at maps and I'm just trying to find these little places before I had that, I would go might go up for a weekend and walk all over the place trying to find a good spot, you know? And, and now I kind of have a general idea of how I can maximize my time when I get up there by having these spots kind of already pinpointed. And another thing too, is when I'm, when I'm going, I can, I can look at the weather on my phone and see like, all right, I'm going up here for the weekend and we're going to have a Southeast wind. So I need to find a couple spots that I can hunt on a Southeast wind. Whereas before growing up, my mentality was, well, the wind is what it is. I mean, here's where my tree stand is. You know, it it just kind of sucks if that happened to be the wind direction, but I didn't know it any different until I kind of got vested in getting myself knowledge to a higher level uh, and figuring that stuff out. Now I can put myself in a position to basically see more, see more deer and less people right so has that worked throughout
0: the the years are the more you hunt these pieces of property you know obviously you get used to them a little bit but like you said 100,000 acres is a big chunk and you know you're kind of exploring probably every season but have you kind of put together uh, a plan or a pattern to or I guess a system to avoid other hunters and avoid
1: that pressure uh yes and no i will i will it depends on what time of year is and what's going on but i will both attempt to avoid pressure and then also use it to my benefit um i can get away from pressure by simply and you know they say it all the time you just got to go a little farther well that that obviously works not very many people are willing to Some guys will walk a mile, but not a whole lot of guys are willing to drag a deer out of the woods uh, a mile. And especially in northern Michigan, I mean, you're talking some nasty, nasty swamps, some stuff that when you stick your hand out in front of your face, you can't see it. It's just that thick. And try to pull a deer back out of there. Guys just know when they get out of their truck, I can only go this far because that's all the farther that I could go to actually recover an animal so i'll go that extra distance uh, I, I know it's talked about all the time now guys you know saying oh you know what uh trained to hunt and, and all this crazy shit uh people taking supplements to and going and yoking up their biceps to go deer hunting <laughs> and posting <laughs> photos online all the time that stuff's ridiculous but i do think it is important that if, if you want to be successful at that level on public land, that you can go a little farther and be able to physically get a animal, you know, out that distance. Cause it's, it's no light burden. You shoot a right. deer a half a mile out into a swamp. You got, you got some work ahead of you. Right. Right. So then have you,
0: I mean, obviously we all look at success in different ways, but strictly from the kill and harvest standpoint would you consider yourself a successful public land hunter
1: yeah the biggest deer that I've shot to date was last season it was a nice three and a half year old eight point buck uh and it was on public land it was a scenario where it was just a hot uh kind of a hot opener of of gun season and I use an access route that I just thought other guys wouldn't be using. And I got into an area where I thought deer it, with it being hot, my anticipation was deer would basically be bedded and not be moving a whole lot and right on the edge of a swamp. And, uh, I was able to get up in a spot and, you know, hit a grunt call a couple times and call in like a year and a half old buck. And I was kind of playing around with him and let him walk through and I heard some other footsteps coming behind him and I thought well that's odd like this is the middle of November Uh, usually bucks are running solo that time of year and obviously a doe's not following a buck around in November they're trying to avoid him and and lo and behold you know it was another uh, you know nice three and a half year old eight point buck and he came out you know 25 yards out to the swamp and I was able to just a perfect shot on him and he didn't even run out of my sight and so that kind of I'm kind of in this transitional phase like I said I think I said it a couple times you know I don't really have a mentor growing up to give me a whole lot of deer hunting information and part of it's on me I I was never a huge reader I'm kind of a more of a a go kind of guy if I try to read something and I sit down within five or ten minutes I'm like spacing out and I have a hard time collecting that information but right when when i came across Wired to hunt and you and the other deer hunting podcast like audible information really sank in with me yeah. and so that was really only i think that was a, a you know a year or a year and a half ago where i kind of started getting this access to information that i never had before and i'm kind of in a phase right now where last season i feel like I really figured some things out, and from this point going forward that I just have a feeling and the amount of work that I'm putting in this year that uh, I probably am not gonna go through this season without getting myself a nice buck
0: so you're that's I mean that's confident, mixed with historical information,
1: yeah, yeah, like I said, just kind of putting it all together now and figuring out what i what I need to do and what I don't need to do, and like I was saying about um, using hunting pressure to my benefit, last year I witnessed that, so you guys had on uh, Mark's podcast a guy by the name of John Eberhardt, do you remember him? Yep. That guy's from Michigan, and he spoke loudly to me, because a lot of the things that he talked about just, just really hit me, And I I started implementing them and saw instant results. And one of the things was to get into your area earlier before, I always generally just thought that deer moved about the woods. You know, they would bed down during the day and then they would get up in the evening and they would move to feed. Well, I've noticed firsthand in seeing deer come back to beds now and being stuck in a stand all day because a buck did bed where I was that they don't move more than 50 to 70 yards from where they bed down. You know, if they bed down right at gray light, uh, they are not going to move out of that spot to an area where they cannot see, smell, or hear until well after dark. And so I've kind of figured out now I have to get in before they do. And when I started doing that, I started noticing that I've already been in the stand for an hour and now I see trucks coming truck lights coming down the roads and car doors opening and closing and now deer are starting to pile into these areas where i'm already kind of an hour ahead of them you know what i mean right and the same thing happens mid-morning historically up in northern michigan it seems like uh you know the ruts going on usually when i take my vacation and i go up there so late uh to mid-morning the 9 to noon mark is it seems like when bucks want to get up out of their bed and kind of cruise around a little bit and see what what's going on and that that like 11 o'clock 10 10 o'clock really even is when a lot of guys come out of the woods and i figured out that if you just sit tight through all that there is a great chance that somebody is going to move through a parcel of woods and kick a deer up And if you're in a spot where deer are already naturally comfortably bedded, he may come right into where you're sitting. And I I saw that so many times this year. So it's just really kind of changed my mentality of how I have to approach the season if I want to be successful on a year-to-year basis. Right. So on a couple of the farms that I hunt,
0: I have to take in hunters. Almost like uh, a wind, right? I have to say, okay, the wind's in this direction, uh, the temperature's of this, you know, uh, it's a morning hunt, it's an evening hunt. Oh, and uh, I have a hunter who's going to be sitting in this tree stand. So do you use where another hunter is hunting in your strategy for
1: where you're going to set up that uh, that particular day or night? Yeah, I certainly do. I know that if a guy has a stand that's 100 yards away from an area that I want to hunt and the wind direction is going to be blowing straight towards me, it's probably not going to be a good spot to be that night. And then I also will take into account how these guys are coming in and out of the woods. Um, The pressure's so heavy down here that you kind of have to be uh, relatively sneaky. Like when, when I hunt public land, when I park my truck, I'll never park my truck where I'm actually hunting. I will park it maybe, whatever, a quarter, a mile down the street somewhere on the other side of the road to just give the impression that, you know, potentially, hey, somebody's in here. But I'll walk down the road and and go across the street. I'll, I'll never tip anybody off to where I am because people do that. It's just, a, a I guess, a, a general thing to make your access as easy as possible, which I I totally get. And that's how I always did it. You know, you park as close as you can get to where you're going and then you hike in from there. But that kind of allowed me to go in uh, and see, okay, I know somebody was parked here yesterday. Now I kind of need to know where he is. And lo and behold, come to find out, it's like, oh, a guy had a stand 75 yards away from me. No wonder I'm not seeing deer here, you know? Right. But so... I will, like I said, the, uh, one of the biggest things for me is just staying on stand a little bit later than what everybody else is. Cause I know that mid morning when everybody in Michigan, I know guys talk about it all the time, you know, staying on stand hunting all day, but here it's always been for us, especially when you're up at deer camp is that you hunt until the middle of the morning and then you go in and you have lunch and you come back out in the afternoon. And If you can sit through that human traffic deer seem to know that it's coming too. And I just, I've seen a a lot. I haven't seen the right buck or I haven't been able to close the deal. I I did see a deer this year and I was right in his bedding area and just could not close the deal. But it it was the biggest deer that I've ever seen uh, in my entire life. And I was right in his bedding area for three days and I saw him on three occasions. I just could not get the deal closed, but I was pretty confident in my head that I had like figured something out. And if I can replicate this next year, I'll be successful.
0: Awesome. Well, I hope that all works out for you. Um, we're coming up on time here right now, but I want to say thank you very much for taking time to come on the podcast, Kevin.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Dan. I, I appreciate
0: you having me on and uh, good luck this upcoming, uh, this upcoming season. And if you were going to give one piece of, of advice, let's say to someone who is frustrated with hunting
1: on public land, what would that advice be? Two things, just, I guess one thing, uh, as far as like, just basically as far as deer hunting goes, uh, get in earlier and stay later. I, I don't think anything can benefit you more than that. And then as far as just like not getting frustrated, just kind of have a little patience and realize that everybody's scenario is your not your scenario. And, and don't blow your lid too quick and get pissed off at other guys that might come walking through your hunting area because you just don't know, you know, what, what their scenario is and what they got going on. Right. Sounds good. Well, again, thank you very
0: much and good luck this upcoming season. Thanks, Dan. And that brings us to an end of another exciting week of podcast here on the nine finger chronicles. Huge shout out to Kevin. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and chatting with us about, uh, your life as a hunter huge shout out to all of the partners of the podcast Ozonics, wasp gearhead lone wolf deer lab exodus and ripcord be sure to go and please check out those partners um you know and you can save some moolah on some of the uh, discounts like wasp enter the code nine finger at nine fingers at checkout and you can receive 25% off your order. Uh, lone wolf, go visit lone wolf hunting com slash nine fingers. And you will, uh, be able to sign up for some free gear and there's probably a discount involved there. I don't know or not. Maybe check that out on the down low. Um, and then Exodus trail cameras. If you enter the code nine fingers in at Check out with Ripcord, you're going to save twenty dollars off your trail cameras, and uh, you know there's going to be some more of those types of things to come throughout this uh, throughout this season. So please go uh, support the partners that support me. I would really appreciate it. Other than that, guys, Facebook, Instagram. Twitter, check me out on social media, give me a like and a handshake or whatever they do. (laughs) But, uh, I'm losing it because I know the weekend is close. So my mind is drifting to other things. Uh, be sure to go sign up for the national deer Alliance, get their newsletter, be informed, It's a big deal for deer hunters all over the country. So um, please join. It's free. Last but not least, it's getting nice out. Get your trail cameras out, get your mineral out, whatever you're doing. But if you're going to be in a tree hanging a tree stand, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good weekend.
1: Thank you.